Good morning, community. Our teaching text today is going to be from the book of Judges. In a blue shed Bible, it's on page 234, and we're going to be in chapter 11. Seventh book of the Old Testament, Judges, page 234 in a blue shed Bible. Chapter 11, starting at verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Arar to the vicinity of Minnith, as far as Abel Karamim, and thus Israel subdued Ammon. And when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child, except for her he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. The word of the Lord. What in the absolute world? <laughs> Hi, I'm Denise, Kingdom Greer, um, something like that. Um, and I'm the pastor of mobilization here at, uh, at Mars. And um, I come to bring you the book of Judges today. It's part of our Mars Hill mixtape. Now, last week, Troy was kind enough to outline for us um, some of the, the temptations um, that come to us, right, when we, when we read texts that kind of make us say, what in the world is that? Some people shrug, some people want to recoil, you know, all the things that were on the list that he gave you. I'm here to admit to you that I am none of those people. I am the one who runs headfirst in the direction of the craziest story I could actually find and find a light in it. I am the person who is looking behind the hedges and the trees to see who, what nameless person might exist there and what little tidbits of story we might be able to get out of them for your delighted pleasure on whatever Sunday morning. That's me. But in the spirit of true transparency, I got to tell you that I have been known to go too far with this. Yeah, I, I, when my son Christopher, who's now 18, when he was about between four and six, he and I were sitting in the car on a Tuesday. My daughter was taking violin lessons, and so for that 30, those 30 minutes, we would always sit in the car and read, or he would nap, and I would, you know, read scripture based on Bible study or whatever that Sunday morning was going to bring or whatever the Lord had prompted in my heart. And for whatever reason... This particular day, I found myself delighted in the book of Judges and said to my four, five, maybe six-year-old son, Christopher, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe what I'm reading here. Remember, I said sometimes I go too far. 
And so when I talk about the word, I get a little excited. I know you've never seen that. So I, I, I begin to say to him, I said, you know, um, there's a story. And I shared this story, the story of Yephthah. I shared that story that Troy just read with my four to six-year-old son sitting in the back seat of the car. And he asked me, Mom, what did Jesus do with the little girl? And because I tend to go too far, I said, well, you know, the man made a promise. So he had to sacrifice him. So he had to kill him. He had to do it. He couldn't do it. He couldn't go back on his word to God. And just me, just delighted, just moving along, not even thinking about my poor son in the backseat. I happened to turn around and look, and he was gazing out of the window from his car seat. And tears were streaming from his eyes. Not a single sound being made, but just, just broken, as we should be when we read these kind of texts. Tears just began to run out of his eyes, and then his sister came in with her violin and hopped in the car and looked at him and said, what's wrong with him? I said, I've been telling him Bible stories. <laughs> and I went too far. And so we drove home, and when we got home, we finally got in the house, and it was as though the, this, this, this floodgate inside of him had been holding back. And as soon as he entered the house, he just, uh, just began to sob audibly. And I began to grab him and hold him and kiss him and apologize to him. <laughs> because I had gone too far. But what do you do with these texts when they come to you? We had some ideas about that when we came to Jericho last week, and this week is a little bit different because this story, this crazy story, is sort of is situated within a certain book that we call Judges. This is the time after the children of Israel have come through the Red Sea, after they have come through the wilderness, after they have come through Jericho, and they found themselves in the place what God had required and desired for them to be. This is before the monarchy, before Saul, before David, before any of those. This is the time of the judges. You might remember that Moses' father, had call, father-in-law, had called him aside and said, Moses, you can't arbitrate over all of the things that are going on here and that's going to go on in the promised land. You must appoint judges who can arbitrate on your behalf. This is the time when those folks, those judges, ruled God's people. And if you know anything at all about the book of Judges, there is one repetitious line that occurs again and again and again, and it is this. And the people did what seemed right in their own eyes. And so goes the rise and fall of God's people from, yes, Lord, we will follow you. We will, we will, will submit to your ways. And then things that they win the battle, the victory over their enemies, and they live in the flourishing. And then they begin to do what seems right in their own eyes. And then they go down and their enemies defeat them and overtake them and take them down. And then they cry out to the Lord again, Lord, please help us. We will follow your ordinances. We will follow in your way. And then God gives them victory over their enemies. And so goes the ebb and the flow of the book of Judges. People did what seemed right in their own eyes. Sound at all familiar? 
But if there's anything that I want you to know today about the book of Judges in particular, is that these sort of what do I do with this stories occur again and again and again in this one concentrated book. I mean, you can find these stories like scattered all the way out through Scripture, but in Judges itself, there are these, these, this is concentration of what do you want me to do with this story in this book? I submit to you, it's probably because during the time of the Judges, in Israel, it was bad. I mean, it was really bad, such that when I say it was really bad, and then I raise my hand, I want you to say, how bad was it? Okay, there we go. So, in the book of Judges, it was, it, there were times when it was really, really bad. How bad was it? It was so bad that God looked out across all of God's people and could only find one person to wear three hats. And that person happened to be a woman named Deborah. That's in the book of Judges chapter 4. Yes, that, 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 that the Lord looked out upon all of the men and all of the people in that time and in that season according to their tradition and looked out and found one faithful one named Deborah and called her to not one but three offices commander-in-chief of the army, the prophet, the voice of God, and the, and the mouth of God in the presence of the people, and the judge over Israel. Basically, Deborah was like Colin Powell, Sonia Sotomayor, and Kendrick Lamar, all mixed up into one. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and it was desperate again and again and again in the book of Judges. I'm telling you, it was really bad. It was so bad that Elimelech and his wife Naomi, even though this story exists in the book of Ruth, actually happens during the times of the judges. They lived in a town called Bethlehem, which in Hebrew means house of bread. They lived in the house of bread when there was a famine. Indeed, there was no bread. It was bad. It was so bad that they left the land that God had promised them, the place where they believed God dwelled, they left with their two sons and they went to the land of the Moabites. They are enemies. It was so bad. They even allowed their sons to take on Moabite wives. I'm trying to tell you, whoo, the times of the judges, it was a bad time. It was, it was, it was really, really bad. One time, this Levite, you know, the people who were in charge of maintaining the law and the order of God, a Levite had a concubine or a wife or unnamed woman, not sure what the relationship was, but anyway, look at the translation. He had this person and they went into a town where there was no hospitality. I'm telling you, it was bad. It was so bad that when they got to this town, they finally did find one man who wanted to offer them hospitality, who invited them into their house. But when they came into the house, the people, the men of the city said, let us come in and let us be inhospitable and visit violence upon your guests. I'm telling you, it was bad. It was so bad that this Levite, he said to, he said to the men outside, wait a minute, don't, don't do this thing. I'll throw my daughter and this man's companion out, and you can have your way with her. 
It's bad. It was so bad that this man, this Levite, he threw his companion out to this hungry, angry, brutalist mob and left her there all night long. It was bad. It was so bad that when he opened the door the next morning, he found her dead, limp body there. He picked her up and he sliced her body into 12 pieces and cast them to the winds of the earth. I'm telling you, it was really bad because the people did what seemed right in their own eyes. It was so bad. It was so bad that a man named Jephthah, who had been appointed, commander-in-chief of the army of God, that he would make up in his mind that in order for him to exact the victory that God had already promised to them in their faithfulness, that he would make a promise to whatever it is that comes out of, out of the door of my house when I come back in victory, I will offer it to you as a sacrifice. It was bad. It was so bad that when he returned home in victory, out of the door opened and out came his beloved only child, his daughter whom he loved. And he had made a vow to the Lord and felt as though he could not take it back. And so he sacrificed his daughter to the Lord. I'm telling you, it was bad. It was really, really bad because people began to do what seemed right in their own eyes as if there wasn't already a law in place, as though there wasn't already a relationship between them and God, as though God had not already proved God's self to them. So now what do we do? Thank God that our brother Tim helped us at the very beginning of this series by giving us these three sort of ways to approach the text in the, text in the Old Testament to help us wrap our minds around what really might be going on here. And it's captured in these three phrases. One, theological witness, right? What is God doing? What is God saying? How is God acting? What are we learning about God in this? Invitation to participation. He called it participation, but I added the invitation, and together we have invitation to participation. And then he invited us to curiosity, what I hope he'll allow me to call wholehearted curiosity. These are the three movements that might help us wrap our heads around this text today. First of all, the theological witness. Where is God in the text? What is God doing in this particular? I know you don't have the Bible in front of you. Maybe you remember it. Maybe you'll reflect on these questions later and go back to the text. Whatever the text might be that you might be exploring, what does this text tell us about God's character and about God's nature? Think about it for a second. I submit to you, dear beloved, that this text is not about God at all. Nor is it about this man's daughter, but it is about his prayer life. It had become so bad that people began to bargain with God for what God had already promised and offered back and offered to offer back gifts that God neither desired nor required. 
What God is he praying to? What God is he bargaining with? The one who will accept anything that comes out of his house as though there are not clear instructions for sacrifices, for what can be sacrificed and can't be sacrificed and what, when and what, how. All of these things have already been prescribed as though there hadn't already been a clear communication since Abraham went on the mountain to offer his son on the altar that our God does not require child sacrifice. Our God is not like other gods. This story, it is not about God, it is about how people pray when things are really, really bad and people do what seems right in their own eyes. And in these times, we are reminded of what one of my favorite Old Testament theologians, Abraham Joshua Heschel, says in his section on prayer in this book, The Insecurity of Freedom. He basically says, God is not at home in the universe. And I might suffice it to say that God is not at home in this text. Listen to what he says. Here's the full quote. He says, God is not at home in the universe where his will is defied and where his kingship is denied. God is in exile. So here's the gracious invitation. Heschel says, to pray then means to bring God back into the world to establish his kingship for a second at least. So as part of our second movement, our invitation to participation, I wonder if we could take a second to examine our own prayer lives. Do our prayers invite God back into the world? Do our prayers have anything to do with God at all? Is God glorified by what we ask for in prayer or does it just make our lives easier or make us more successful or help us to get along the way? How can our prayers welcome God back into the universe, back into the church, back into the community. Because guess what? When God is at home, our children who have gone afar off will sit at his feet. When God is at home, we will gain both healing and perspective on sickness. When God is at home, Israel will win the battle against their enemy every single time without the bargaining agreement Jephthah types want to enter into with God. What if for one season, one month, one week, one year, we were to simply invite God back into the universe in our prayer? might look something like thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
and now wholehearted curiosity. Asking ourselves, interrogating for ourselves the questions that pop up and stir up within us. Consider this. What is the scariest thing about praying to God, your will be done? What scares us the most about? Texts like these and Judges and others we've heard during the series might make us want to rethink this book that we say we love. And therefore, the God who acts in ways that we don't understand. But please, I beg of thee, stay curious and hopeful that the goodness of God that you know stands as a witness to help us abide in the goodness of God that doesn't quite seem good right now. We learn to speak before reading. And then once we learn to read, we are taught to speak better. And so it is with our prayer lives. We learn to pray often before we learn to whom we are praying. And now that we have this, to borrow a metaphor, clean windshield for at least another two seconds before us, ask yourself, and I'll ask myself, what hinders me from becoming more faithful in my prayer life? What hinders us from moving from, I'm just going to lay in the bed here and pray real quick, to falling down on our knees and acknowledging the God of the universe that is bigger and greater and more powerful than us have allowed us to make it through a day in order to humble ourselves and say thanks. What hinders us from ceasing our on and on rambling and just sitting in the listening and the presence and the beauty of the God who walked in the garden with Adam and with Eve? What would hinder us from asking more questions than desiring answers in order to know the mystery of God which has been revealed only in Christ, what would it take for us to become more faithful in our prayer life? Last Heschel quote, here it is. He says, there are no devices, no techniques, no specialized art of prayer. He says, all of life must be a training in prayer. And we pray the way we live. Yephatha lived in a time when people did what seemed right in their own eyes. And it was bad. How bad was it? It was so bad that Yephatha made a vow but forgot to pray. May we pray to never forget our God who is good even when God's good doesn't look good to us from here. 
whether it's in this text or whether it's in the world. Let us not forget the goodness of God. And if we are tempted to even think about trying to forget, thank God we have remembrance. For there is a table that has been set for us. That we get to come and delight and enjoy the goodness of God on full display. The one true living God. The one who invites us to pray. And so the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give our thanks and praise. Holy and right it is and our joyful duty to give thanks at all times and all places to you, O Lord, our God, our creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, O God, joining our voices with angels and with archangels and with all of the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn in proclamation, the glory of your name, holy, holy, holy. God of power and might, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so send your spirit upon us now, we pray, so the bread which we break and the cup which we bless would be to us the communion of the body and blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. As these grains have been gathered from many fields into one loaf and these grapes from many vines into one cup, so soon and very soon, let your whole church be joined together in you, even to the ends of the earth. Amen. So I give to you, friends, that which I also receive. How the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, broken for you. In the same manner, after they had supped, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you partake of it, you do proclaim my death until I come again. The bread which we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. The cup which we bless is a sharing in the life of Christ. And we sum all that up as it has been done for many, many centuries, many, many generations before us. And these three simple phrases, say them with me. Christ has died. Christ, Christ will come again. And so, beloved, Mars Hill Church, come and receive who you are. the body of Christ for all things are now ready. Amen.